listening to another episode of the Niagara Moon podcast. As always, I'm Thomas Irwin. I'm a musician going by a Niagara Moon. And uh, in addition to making music, I love listening to music and talking about music. And that's what this whole show is for. Joining me this week to talk about electric light orchestras out of the blue, I have uh, my patron Joe from out in Ohio. We have a grand old time today digging into this behemoth of an album and, you know, getting into the legacy of Jeff Lynne and all that. There's probably a couple of, you know, areas of trivia we might have missed. Uh, I didn't realize that their accompanying live show was so, so successful, I guess, like the biggest uh, concert series like ever up until that day. And, you know, a little, little stuff like that. But uh, we have a good time. We get into some of the, uh, the nuances of Yellow's music. And I think it's worth it just to kick right into it. Here we go. doing today? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well myself. Uh, any day I get to sleep in a little bit, you know, on a Sunday morning, <laughs> that's always gives me a little boost. For sure. I feel you. And, uh, you know, it's the beginning of May. The weather is really nice today. It's very warm. You can hear the birds singing. You got some sunshine. Uh, I said hello to Mr. Blue Sky today. Hey, there you go. He's up there waiting. Mm-hmm. Today might be the day we've been waiting for, or, or. <laughs> <laughs> so the album we're talking about is Out of the Blue by Yellow Magic Orchestra. Electric Light Orchestra. It's big. This is lavish. It's, it's, uh, it's huge. It's 70 minutes long. Uh, it's a colossal hit. It's got so many classic uh, tracks of the 70s. And uh, I really don't know much about the band, even given all that. This is third. They've always been kind of a mystery to me. Uh, I was almost going to say Yellow Magic Orchestra. That's a Japanese group. Yeah. I don't know if you know about them. but uh, I don't, but I'm going to look them up now. How big a, an ELO fan are you? So it's interesting. I, I got into ELO in kind of when I was starting to fully get into music. So when I got into Elton and then slowly after that, I got into like my big three of Who, Pink Floyd and Bowie. But my aunt actually listened to a lot of ELO. So I got into like the hits in the beginning, like Don't Bring Me Down. Um, I did have Mr. Blue Sky um, and a few of those. And ELO was always kind of linked in my mind with Boston for whatever reason. Oh, I totally um, see that. The, the font, mm-hmm. the album artwork. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I ended up dirt drifting more into ELO because of that kind of orchestral sound that they ended up bringing in. Of course, yeah. you know, it's in the name. Uh, but as a, as a band to really lean into that fully, it, it was very interesting to me how dynamic they did it too. So yeah, I mean, Jeff Lynn, of course, like one of the genius behind it, especially Into the Blue. Like I'm looking right now at my vinyl just on the back it's in bold letters, just all music and lyrics by Jeff Lynn, produced by Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on a, like you said, a giant album like this, that's wild. Um, about this album in particular, though, uh, for the longest time, I would just listen to uh, what what is side three on it, which is uh, subtitled, and we'll get into this probably a little later, uh, The Concerto for a Rainy Day, yeah. which has Mr. Blue Sky on it, um, which is you know what everyone knows. 
but the whole album flows really well. And I think uh, one of the, the strongest uh, strengths of, of ELO is just their ability to kind of create a hook or, or an earworm, for lack of a better term, that could really stick with you all day. And so many of these tracks just have little portions uh, that really stay with you for days or weeks. So He is definitely a 70s pop songwriting wizard, Mr. Jeff mm-hmm. Lynne. He's got a huge stamp on late 20th century pop music between his work with ELO and then producing for George Harrison and the Traveling Wilburys and being involved mm-hmm. in the Beatles anthology series in, in the 90s. Uh, and he's worked with Tom Petty. And he's, he's a very big uh, player in heavily arranged, very carefully carried out uh, pop music, like orchestral pop music, for lack of a better word. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's like, a, I would almost say he's like a musician's musician, but obviously his, his own work has blew up over the years too. I mean, everybody knows Mr. Blue Sky. Everybody knows Don't Let Me Down. And what, there's like 15, 20 other hits. Um, like I, I had never really sat down and listened to a whole album of theirs, but you know, I, I had had a greatest hits at some point. And everybody knows at least like, you know, 10 to 20 songs of theirs. They're, they're kind of inescapable. Uh, Evil Woman, Sweet Talking Woman, Telephone Line. Telephone Line, man. Uh, it's, it really is hard to believe it. It's, it's all pretty much coming from this, you know, mainly from this one guy's brain. So do we want to get into a little bit about how the, how the album was made? Because I like the story behind it. I don't know if yeah. you know about like his whole process of, uh, of, the, of the album being made. So... Um, Apparently, and I had, I usually try to find a couple sources to cooperate things like this, but apparently it was made on a self-imposed kind of four-week deadline. Um, Which is crazy to me. And then two of those, right? And then two of those weeks were spent doing nothing. <laughs> or, well, excuse me, it was, it was dreamed up, not recorded, of course, but like written and yeah. like the ideas and everything for it. Right. Um, yeah, he, he kind of hit himself away in a, in a chalet in the Alps. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, two weeks of just rain and, and mist and gray, and he was kind of beating his head up against a wall. And then, and then all of a sudden, uh, to quote him, uh, to quote Jeff on a on a BBC interview, he says, "The first two weeks I was there, it was really miserable, drizzly, cloudy, and nothing nice at all. I couldn't come up with anything." Um, and then, yeah, like you said, he all of a sudden everything opened up, and you can imagine being in the Swiss Alps when everything opens up. It's a sight to behold and he wrote all the songs in the following two weeks and then went to went to work on recording it for the time afterwards but it's interesting and i kind of wanted to get your your viewpoint on this uh he uh i found a few different reports of him really just digging the studio work more than actually touring the thing so yeah so let me see if i could find a specific uh, here we go. So this is a little bit later in my notes, but this is on when he started to get like really big. Um, uh, a quote that he did for Rolling Stone. I was reluctant to become a real rock star. My favorite thing in the world was to work 14 hour days in a studio. Everything else was peripheral to me, like having the record out and promoting it. I was a songwriter, singer and producer. Rock stars. Are Not different. surprising to me at all. So there's a lot of reports of him just really uh, he's he's been quoted as saying that he really works well and really likes working on a deadline. Hence the four week deadline. Um, I have mixed feelings about how I personally work on a deadline, <laughs> but um, 
but it's interesting that he he kind of challenges himself and put these I don't want to say limitations, but these uh, these time frames on himself. He keeps uh, to a schedule. Yeah, <laughs> you could you could definitely say that. Um, but yeah, what do, what are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. Uh, so, like I said, I really didn't ever know too too much about Jeff Lynne and ELO in particular. Um, so I was reading up on this album a little bit out of the blue and every little piece of info I got did not surprise me much. Uh, I mean, this music is really, really intricate. I mean, not just the, the whole recording process and how there's all these different instrumental parts, but just like the way the, the chord progressions are constructed and everything. This is definitely like a man who's very reverent about music and scholarly. And also... I, so when he's making that difference between uh, being a rock star and just being a musician, there's definitely this, I hear this quality of he just wants to do the work, put together the sounds, pay homage to all the music he loves. Um, he's not putting any of himself really in it. Like you never get any sort of insight into who Jeff Lynn is, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Are you frozen? No, I hear you. You're good. He went through a divorce around this time, like in 1977, he divorced his first wife. You'd never know that listening to the music. Mm. You know, I feel Mm. like there's this, in general, a very sharp divide between anything about really him and his emotions and what's going on in his life and writing and putting out these songs. Like it's, you know, Bob Ross, the the painter, a wonderful painter and uh, former TV show host. Everybody loves Bob Ross. Bob Ross could paint like nobody's business and he could do it very quickly and he could do a very particular thing. He could create a you know beautiful summer landscape and look at all the little trees or he could do a winter landscape uh, with his Prussian blue and his Van Dyke brown and it's, 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 he's a craftsperson. It's like he does this very particular thing very well and he can do it consistently. He can do it often. He, you know, he puts a little zhuzh in it every time. He, he, he injects a little creativity and freshness. But he just, it's, it's like a, you know, a trick that he keeps pulling off. He's not, um, you know, as far as I can make out, he's not driving himself mad in the studio or, you know, pushing his psyche to all these limits. He just, he loves the craft of putting together this music and he wants to do it as much as he can. And, uh, you know, he's not taking you on a really high stakes emotional journey or, uh, you know, really putting himself out there or making himself vulnerable, which is, you know, some artists do that, some artists don't. And he, it's no wonder that he ended up mainly being a producer after a while because he, that's his favorite part of the job, which I can certainly relate to that. I, I can relate to the idea of just loving the, the, the tinkering around hermiting yourself in the studio just strictly music making part of it and forgetting all the crafting an image and uh developing a personality for the public Mm -hmm. actually you know it's i was actually going to say the same thing when i was listening to you that uh that really he he i'd imagine he he slipped into that producing role with great ease um and like you said i mean it's interesting too that he have ended up getting to work with all these people that he clearly gets so influenced by and harrison and all of them because you could hear so much of the beatles uh in the music so um beach boys too with the backing vocals and uh the bob ross is a really was a really good comparison uh not only because he looks like bob ross they got the same hair that's probably what i why i thought exactly of 
<laughs> you just put you just pop some aviators on Bob Ross and you have Jeff Lynn. Um but because he has all these influences and all these different tools, uh, RE paint, uh, and he uses that to create these soundscapes that, you know, are so reminiscent, but through the ELO filter that are these homages in a way, but like you said, he never gets his own, you never, you never get the Jeff Lynn's personality, like his own personal life in it, but he could still use all these things to create this beautiful, right. you know, uh, catching music. captivating music yeah Mm -hmm. he he loves music for music's sake and you can tell he's a diehard uh dedicated listener to all these classic 60s groups uh i mean my god across the border is heroes and villains at least in my ears yeah uh Mm -hmm. it's it's weird he's it's a very interesting mix of several different huge artists but he mixes it in a way that's just right for him. Like nobody else quite did it that way. So Mr. Blue Sky is the Beatles meets Queen to my ears. It's mm-hmm. like, what if... Sweet Talking Woman. Sweet Talking Woman, yeah. It has, has a lot of Beach Boys in the background. Yeah, it's, the background vocals. it really, it's interesting. I think he was almost ahead of his time in how much he's paying homage to these artists that were still like barely uh, past their prime. I mean, they were almost contemporary. Uh, at least at this point in the mid '60s, in the way he's already calling out and referencing and paying homage to the Beach Boys, the Beatles. It's uh, I think he was ahead of his time in doing that because when people had a little more time in general in the culture to appreciate how awesome all those artists were, maybe by the the '80s or '90s, people were all over that in in kind of going back and mining those sounds and those ideas, but. He was doing it, you know, just slightly after the fact in the 70s. I, I can't think of many other 70s, you know, influential pop artists who were truly tuned into uh, how great those other artists were and, you know, like channeling them in their own work. I feel like he's kind of unique in that way because he's, mm-hmm. he's sort of prog, but he doesn't really fit in at all with the Yes crowd and the Jethro Tull and the Genesis Um like I get a little bit of the vibe of those bands and maybe the the cover art, which is, you know, pretty fantastical. Yeah. The the ELO spaceship by the same uh, the Japanese spaceship, il- which yeah yeah. Uh, I was just gonna say which they brought to tour now too when they would come out in the in the spaceship for this entire tour, uh, which was kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a just ridiculous party, like a sp- spacey pop <laughs> fever dream. You know, every, everything's so over the top and extravagant. Oh, man. Speaking of uh, speaking of Spacey Pop Fever Dreams and also being ahead of their time, the use of the vocoder synthesizer to distort the voice so much or throughout it, um, that was cutting edge at the time. Oh, yeah. The, which is kind of wild. The use of synths in general is very tasteful, I would say. And I was not expecting mm-hmm. it to... Be like they got a bajillion, you know, ARP synthesizers and all that stuff. I was not expecting that component. Uh, I was not expecting it to be so kind of cool and and uh, you know experimental and really prominent. Do you do you remember the mm-hmm. name of the guy who does all that? Because he has a particular uh, keyboardist that really seemed to be in, in charge of that. Oh. Richard Tandy. R- Richard Tandy. There you go. So that's mm-hmm. that's the thing about ELO. It's 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 the Jeff Lynne show kind of. But he must be a really 
you know, in tune, uh, generous collaborator because the, the other main members of this group, which is uh, Richard Tandy and, and the drummer, Bev Bevan, like they're firing on all cylinders and you really feel like they get a lot of room to do what they want to do. Yeah, I looked up and I had like the credits for like who plays what. And it's just like between Lynn, Bevan and Tandy, there's just so many because like I'm looking right now, Richard Tandy, uh, Yamaha C7B Piano, Wurlitzer Electric Piano, ARP 2600, Mini Moog, Polymer, AP, ARP Omni, ARP Odyssey. It's uh, and like all the different slide guitars that Lynn plays and. Uh, my favorite thing is a random credit for Bev Bevan playing the fire extinguisher <laughs> on Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's all, there's so many, like you said, so many instruments just synthesized so tastefully together um, and working so harmoniously. Yeah, J- Jeff Lynn is, is, he's the grand uh, orchestrator, you know, the maestro. He's, he's uh, conducting it all and, and making sure it's all running smoothly you know an artist Mm -hmm. can only be so many people if you're a crazy showman and you do these insane live performances that are so in the moment like say an iggy pop i don't think you can be an iggy pop and then okay we're in the studio and i'm gonna like conduct 14 synthesizer parts and the strings come in like you know you can only do so many things as one artist so jeff lynn is definitely Mm -hmm sit in the back of the room and, and put it all together. And, and, you know, he's, he's the grand, uh, architect of everything. It's, you know, that's where he's comfortable. He wants to be, you know, sitting down, thinking, putting together the pieces. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure to a certain extent, all the, the rest of the stuff that comes with being in a band felt more like a chore for him. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I know we're, we're, I feel like we're getting a lot of time just talking about Jeff Lynn and his process, but I mean, I think you do need to know that to fully, fully appreciate the album that's what this album is exactly um there was a quote from bev bevan on just the creation of not only i guess not only the album because he alludes to it being a constant which is uh let's see jeff had every song for that album on tape as usual he had done it with piano guitar and humming the tune we always built up the album in the same way drums and bass first then piano followed by rhythm guitar electric keyboards would come next and then finish with guitar solos. So it's down to a science how they get all of this done. Um, yeah. And it's, I found it intriguing that it's, it's to the point where it's like, all right, so we got the bass, now let's build up. It's almost like building a house. You do it in a very specific order, um, and it still ends up being this. Yeah, or painting yeah. a painting. You start with the sky, exactly. you got to mix your colors, and you start with the sky. You start your bass sketch and then go on top of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, so this album, Out of the Blue, along with a lot of other work by the band, I mean, it's, it seems like it did receive some criticism here and there mm-hmm. for maybe lacking passion. You know, whatever. When you think of the best music and the best bands of the 70s, critically, ELO aren't always like at the top of the stack. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think I recently might be a little bit too. I feel like it might be a little more than recently now, but... Uh, they're definitely kind of got either ignored or I don't want to fully say shunned, but uh, like I usually do with, with these uh, whenever I'm on an episode, I looked up the Rolling Stone review and some of the yeah, quotes yeah. on them are kind of brutal. Um, let me just pull a random one from here, which is uh, they were talking about 
What I heard was meticulously produced and performed set of songs with subtle nods to the Beach Boys, the Bee Gees, um, and of course the Beatles, and without any noticeable passion or emotion. Um, all method, no madness, perfectly hollow and bland rock music. Uh, so, wow. That's pretty biting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, so it's like, I can kind of see, cause like I said, I, I love all sorts of music. This is an era of music that I generally dig into everything. And for whatever reason, Yellow in my mind were like a hits band, like, oh yeah, undeniable, uh, examples of great songwriting, but am I going to really dig into the whole catalog of the band and invest in all that? Whatever. Like the, the album covers are a little goofy to me. <laughs> um, you know, they have a certain reputation, whatever. But so I see a little bit, you know, why that reviewer might say that kind of thing at the time, Rolling Stone magazine, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think it's totally warranted. I do think there's more going on with this project. And there is there is a passion. There is a mm-hmm. vision. Um, even though it is a mix of a bunch of other famous artists, it is a unique vision. Uh, Jeff Lynne is very driven and I think cares and feels very deeply about his music. And the bottom line is there's a lot of great songs on here that this was, this is a 70 minute double album, but it was a lot of fun to listen to and did not have a lot of dips in quality. Mm hmm. It's it's interesting how that the the review itself is almost like a period piece because like yeah I could definitely see because the flip side of what we've been talking about so far of he's got this you don't really get a lot of Jeff Lynne in it himself he synthesizes all these beautiful parts together to create this masterpiece the flip side is someone's counter argument can be oh well we don't get a lot of him so it's not really there's no passion in it but I think they're just looking in the wrong place which I think also comes from the time yes. that like because that one was this review was written at in uh let's see 78 so um yeah. at that time you know you're probably looking for a lot of the uh a lot of different showy things as opposed to what lynn would be producing um so by that kind of a standard of what you know makes a band great quote unquote uh elo might rank lower but overall uh like you kind of alluded to earlier it becomes almost like a musician's musician in some senses where you need to Look for a specific thing to really uh, see the passion that Lynn does bring to it. So. Yeah, he's totally at odds with the punk new wave thing that was on the rise by that time. And I don't know how much that Rolling Stone reviewer had that stuff on their mind too, but he stands alone. He's not really in the high concept progressive rock world. Like the, you know, maybe they sort of started that way. I, again, I'm not familiar with much of their early work. But they had longer track lengths that gradually got shorter and shorter, and like the writing got more and more concise. You know, as I was just like flipping through the uh, the albums that they produced throughout the seventies, it's like as you go on, I'm like, oh, that one has uh, that song. Ooh, okay, uh, face yeah. the music. Ooh, I like a lot of the songs on on there. Uh, Evil woman, uh, one summer dream. Mm-hmm. Like it, they they go in this direction that is definitely. Uh, I just think at odds with a lot of other artists at that at that era, like they did, just grew to embrace just tight, kitschy but fun, undeniable pop songwriting, mm-hmm. like more and more. Yeah, I don't know. Is it your as you might be a uh, bigger ELO fan than I, or more knowledgeable? Was was out of the blue, really kind of their their crowning achievement? 
in that, or is Definitely. it just like the longest example? I would say a little, uh, a little bit of both, because the album that it came off of, a New World Record, was probably their biggest hit splash that really brought them into the limelight. Because that had Telephone Line, that had Do You, that had Living Thing. Um, fun fact: I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Great songs. I, Living Thing. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, I might be mistaken, but if I'm if I do remember right, uh, New World Record was also the debut of that kind of UFO symbol for them um because before that they didn't really have a lot of specific imagery like the first their first album i believe aponius just self-titled just had like a light bulb on it and like this orchestra hall Mm. like electric light orchestra um but ever since that happened so i would say new world order was like their first big hit quote unquote i mean they had hits before then but that was what really brought them into the limelight followed up by the hit machine of out of the blue um you know, they just kept going in that direction, and then, of course, using this the spaceship from then on. I'd say early ELO. Yeah, really they really found their of, look by then. Yeah, definitely. Early ELO, in my opinion, they were kind of trying to grasp how to get the mix of uh, rock and orchestra. Um, some of their earlier stuff is a little bit more rocky. Like, for instance, uh, people point to like "Roll Over Beethoven," which is one of their first ones, which uh, like the, oh, that that sounds a little bit yeah. Like that was kind of a mission statement that a lot of people see for their earlier stuff, which didn't come out like that great. Mm. And if you listen to that versus some stuff of, from Out of Their Blue, how they handle that, it's it's like a different band. Um, they evolved, yeah, yeah. And I think around the time of these two albums, a new world record and and Out of the Blue, they really came into fully their own. Um, I mean, they still have some some. Uh, a new world record was their sixth album yes we're talking about a band starting to really come into their own and define the thing at album six yes and they still do have a little bit of a a little bit of a a throwback to some like with birmingham blues (laughs) um that was i like that one it was a good track that one surprised me Mm -hmm. uh but that's a little bit of a taste of maybe some of their earlier stuff because it definitely comes out of left field a little bit um but it's good i mean i think they came back to that kind of a, a style with with the knowledge of seven seven albums under their belt at that point so mm-hmm. um this kind of ties into a point that maybe i was gonna try to make earlier and i'm just too scatterbrained or we're having too many connection issues today but uh you know you, you talk about the band or you can criticize the band for kind of being paint by numbers like okay they have a very specific rigid process they adhere to uh you know there's no crazy deep emotional journey it's just kind of matter of fact you know well orchestrated songwriting over and over again to have this much output just sheer number of songs written and recorded per year this is a huge the amount of music that they made just in the 70s that's a colossal amount and uh mm-hmm. you know you're you're talking about adhering to deadlines and working well with the deadlines you know, they to produce just that consistently at that volume over and over again. Like, yeah, you're going to get into a very, I mean, I kind of ex- experienced this with my own music, uh, especially when I was making the Niagara Moon album, Fuzzy Thinking. It's like, if you want to get a bunch of songs out and carry through all these ideas, you got to just kind of put your head down and focus on the music and, uh, that, clearly that's where jeff lynn shines best that's that's like a particular Absolutely. skill of his that he could just do it over and over and over and into the 80s and uh he's a workhorse mm-hmm. 
And there's so many quotes that I got from him from various interviews that just sum up to like, yep, I just like putting my head down and I like working. Like that's my, that's where I feel most at home. And it definitely shows in the music he makes and the work ethic he keeps. So what are, what are some of the, what are some of the, I know you mentioned that Birmingham Blues was one that you, that vibed with you. What are some of the other standouts for you in the album? There's a lot to pick from. There certainly are. This is how many tracks total? 17? Yes. 17 tracks. Something crazy like that. So like I said, I had a greatest hits album. I always enjoyed that. And there are a few songs from that that were in this album. So obviously, Mr. Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. But then you also had Turn to Stone, which is maybe one of my favorites, period. That song has been stuck in my head for years. It's, <laughs> it's just so effortlessly joyful. It doesn't wear out its welcome. Just has all these great, really tightly constructed moments. Just classic. Uh, Turn to Stone is great. Sweet Talking Woman I was familiar with. I like that one quite a bit. Uh, and then... I believe that's all I was initially familiar with. And then I went through this gigantic thing this week. Um, I wish I had gotten the opportunity to hear it a little bit more, but I remember uh, really enjoying Summer and Lightning and uh, Starlight was cool. Mm-hmm. Birmingham Blues, again, that, that kind of took me by surprise. I, I like some moments on The Whale, the instrumental, where they really just got to let the, yeah. uh, the different arrangements and the, the synth work really shine on that. Um, I don't think there were, like, like I said, this was just a, a pleasure, you know, it, nothing terribly surprised me too much, but it was just, it was pretty pleasant all the way through to, to listen to this. Um, yeah. how about you? What are, what are your, uh, go-tos when you put this album on? So my, the side that I play the most by far is Concerto for a Rainy Day. So Standing in the Rain, Big Wheels, Summer and Lightning, yeah. and Mr. Blue Sky. It's so funny because for the longest time I would just listen to Mr. Blue Sky and then I realized it's kind of this, it's the, you're reading the end of a story basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, but it all flows together so well. And ironically out of those four songs, I think I started to like over time and I, I could probably confidently say that standing in the rain is my favorite out of the four, not even Mr. Blue Sky. Um, that was I just like too, how it yeah. starts it off. Um, I like the kind of the different layered vocals they have in that. So that entire side gets a special shout out. Um, Starlight, I really like too. Um, that's a fun one. Um, I really dug Night in the City. Uh, that was a pretty good one. The I'll get, I'll, I'll get you. Guess I'm gonna get you. I'll get you. Guess I'm gonna get you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That like, that was that. There was one song around that part of the album that had amazing piano work. Like even. Because I think that the song "Night in the City" wasn't maybe one of the higher points for me, but there were still like some instrumental moments halfway in where I was like, "Wow, they really yeah. they did not skimp on any part of this." Like even this part of the song is blowing my mind. The strings on "Night in the City" really stuck out to me because they mm. that little bit that I just terribly sung. They had <laughs> they had strings on the back of that, which which was throughout the entire thing, and then eventually. The lyrical payoff to it at the end was kind of a nice crescendo of it. Um, uh, that was really good. Of course, we talking woman turned to stone. Um, Wild West Hero was an interesting way to end it. I did like that one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think between the two of us, we named all the all the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I gotta say, I did not care for Jungle. That's oh, fair. That, that one rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. 
just product of its time, maybe. That's true. Jungle was a little bit iffy. Um, Sweetest the Night, I thought was kind of forgettable. Mm. Um, but I think those are the only two that I can really count against it. Because then the only other one I don't think we mentioned by name was It's Over. Uh, oh, and Big Wheels, that that. which is part of your uh, concerto for a rainy day. It's, a, it's gigantic, 17 songs. It is and huge. it wasn't like, okay, he took some extra time. Uh, he took an extra year to you know figure out what he's where he's gonna take the the band next and he you know they struggled for a few months no it was like yes. album in six in 76 album 78 oh, in between that i'm gonna make 17 songs and write it in a couple weeks record it in four weeks and release it mm-hmm. two months later this this timeline is insane i mean he really was just the studio must have been a huge part of his life. How many hours? Right. You know, where he wasn't doing anything else. I can only imagine. Uh, man. Yeah. I, I mean, he loved it. I mean, that, I don't think he would have had it any other way. <laughs> you know? Nope. So. Hmm. Must have not had a huge uh, social circle. <laughs> yeah, no, just the band, really. I <laughs> Yeah. Apparently he did uh he did enjoy uh he did enjoy himself in the studio. There's many reports of him drinking a lot of Belgian beers and he always liked to have <laughs> one whenever he was recording. So lived it up in the studio a little bit, but uh but still in the studio. So. Belgian beer in the Alps. Yep. Sounds it's man of taste. Right, exactly. <laughs> so overall with, with ELO, like I, I know Joe, you own a lot of vinyl do you have a lot of uh, elo vinyl i have a few vinyls so i actually am still looking to get a new world record on vinyl because i don't own that but i have their first one i have out of the blue i have discovery which is their next one after this mm. um which has uh don't bring me down on it um yeah. and i have the one before new world record which i can't remember the name of off the top of my head but um uh face the music yes mm-hmm with the little, it almost looks like, I feel like the the cover almost, I don't know. It's hard to describe. Very awkward typeface. They yeah. really hadn't <laughs> figured out their look on. The album itself has a lot of highlights, but it's 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 not a good look, mm-hmm. the cover yet. They really, like like I said, they really came to their own look-wise and kind of music-wise with New World Record, both with the with, with the album art and with the, with the uh, musical stylings. But uh, yeah. yeah, I have. I would say I, I've got that makes about five vinyls. So, which is crazy to think that like, like you said, one they're all in this short period of time, and then two, me can still say, oh well, I still need to get a lot to complete this era, though. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and that's how that's that's the way I first listened to it too on vinyl because I, I go through a, usually whenever we do one and I have a vinyl of it, I listen to it on vinyl first, which I I wonder how many people we'll hear the little refrain at the end of Mr. Blue's guy where it says, please turn me over years from now. Uh, I have no idea, no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. There's like a little, a message at the end of the song, like uh, a meta kind of comment to say, Hey, turn over this album. Now this is the last this song is, on this side. Yeah, It's time. Now. If you want to hear the next song, you got to come over to the record player. Mm-hmm. What's interesting too. Uh, I, I saw a quote from Lynn that, he throws in some stuff like that just because he gets like he he doesn't want songs to get monotonous or he gets bored during it. Um, uh, I think that's another mark of an obsessive producer that spends all their time in the studio where they hear what they're working on over and over and over again. So they think 
and they hear so they start hearing it a certain way and they think other people will get bored if there's not more and more and more mm-hmm. to to hold their interests or different things to latch onto. I I can definitely fall into that doing Niagara Moon stuff if if I'm uh, you know listening to the same idea over and over and you 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 feel like you have to start compensating for that for by putting in even more other musical ideas or like all these other details. Like so I definitely hear that kind of phenomenon playing yeah. out with uh with I mean with this album in particular. Another another point that I read about it and I mean it makes sense is in Turn into Stone, excuse me, Turn to Stone when he just sings really quickly in the middle of it. Um <laughs> I saw an interview where he's like, oh, well, we got to break it up somehow. Yep, we'll just, we'll, yep, that sounds good. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that, I mean, uh, without knowing anything about it, that was one of my favorite parts of the song when I was growing up and getting into them, when they just had this random, really fast paced, yeah. and then it gets back into a really quick groove. So I made it work effectively, <laughs> you know, it kept interest in the song and it broke it up in a nice way. Yeah. No, I mean, he's a genius at that. And then I, that's, again, I wonder how much, I'd be very curious how much input he takes from his collaborators like Richard Tandy and, and Beth Bevan. I would think it was probably a pretty simpatico relationship still. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also the kind of thing where you're working this quickly. You're just go, 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 and you're not overanalyzing stuff. I, I would imagine a lot of musical decisions like that are just, day of you it just kind of comes to you like you get a feeling or an impulse to try something like that and you just you know there's no over planning or over analysis with stuff like that you're just kind of going by uh like gut impulse at that point Mm -hmm. which i mean that makes for a particular particularly fun kind of uh you know musical style absolutely almost just like always uh always playing off each other very improv like but i mean and I'm wondering, I, want, I would like to hear, too, how much their musical, I mean, I'd imagine it sounds like they all basically share the same musical influences, because um, you would kind of have to in order to to work that smoothly and get this concise point of, like, all these pretty clear influences together. Um, right. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to hear all of them talk music, basically, and <laughs> just their influences. Yeah. Um, I think that'd be a very fascinating and learning moment. Yeah, if you could see Lynn and then a, f- a f- you know a f- few other people from the crew together, I think you'd get a sense of how much of it really is they were all creatively on the same page, or how much is it, you know, Jeff Lynn is this almost tyrannical <laughs> music director, and if you know everything's cool if you fall in line mm-hmm. and, and get on board with what what he wants to do, he is the leader. You know, I, I wonder how much of it. It's that dynamic. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you read about uh, how the band initially formed, where it started at a started out as uh, the Move. I did not and all actually. that. You might, um, you might fill me in. I only took a. I was okay. Well, I, I only took like a momentary glance at it on Wikipedia. But <laughs> uh, Jeff Lynn joined somebody else's group called the Move, and then just gradually kind of transformed it into his group, Electric Light Orchestra, or. There was going to be an idea for a while that the two bands were going to exist together, but as no, it's you know he gradually uh, took control. That's interesting. And I, I'd be curious, you know, what, what the dynamic is there of people just you know loving his vision and wanting to fall in line, and you know how, how much room there still is for them to contribute ideas. It, it, in this case, I think it would be very interesting. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know if that's known to to the true fandom out there or. Or if that's kind of a secret. 
Well, that kind of makes me think too, how I forget if it was in the late nineties or around that time, how we kind of gave up the band and he transferred ownership to, I think it was Bev. I forget who off the top of my head. No. Oh, but, uh, oh, and then on him. like he, he didn't pull a Roger Waters. Well, well, there's a twist at the end. Uh, cause, okay. cause then he came, he came back, I think pretty recently. And now if you look on Spotify and stuff, now it's called Jeff Lindsay LO. Um, mm. so it's interesting. I mean, it like you, you would say, oh yeah, he, he let it live on under another name. Uh, and now it's seeming as if, uh, I don't, I didn't look at the current lineup because I didn't realize that they, they were apparently going to tour again for, I think the 50th anniversary or something like that. But then COVID of course happened. Wow. Yeah. Um, but now they're going not just under ELO, now it's Jeff Lynn's ELO. So very in, important distinction there. Uh, exactly. Have Have you ever seen them live or seen him or anything? I have not. Uh, they're on. They were on my list, but um, but now we'll, we'll see if they bring up again because I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily doubt it. I feel like he's easing more into playing nowadays. Um. I feel like I, maybe it was too just a product of the era because, like we kind of touched on earlier, they came out with the giant spaceship. So I think they were kind of following suit of um, of what a lot of people were doing then with these giant stage shows. Uh, whereas I think he would probably Huge find, and I, I, yeah, and I've seen a couple of photos of him playing more recently, where it's pretty stripped down. Uh, and I think he would probably find himself more comfortable there. So assuming he goes out again, I probably definitely, I'd see him, but they're on my list. Yeah. There's already so much going on with the music. I don't know how much like visual stimuli you need, like maybe, you know, a little bit, you can have some fun costumes, but I, you don't, do you need a whole, like the wall style epic stage show? I don't know. Yeah. Listen, they, they put a lot of money into those UFOs. (laughs) (laughs) ufos are big right now right we gotta get it jeez oh man kids like extraterrestrials we gotta connect with the new generation with their ancient (laughs) aliens (laughs) it's interesting how they kind of how they are and i know we touched on it earlier but i just keep coming back to thinking about how they've almost i don't want to say had a resurgence because and maybe that's just my own personal bias always being aware and kind of appreciative of their work but i feel like they every now and again they just kind of resurge i remember for a hot minute i feel like i always heard their music on commercials on tv Mm. Uh, which is fair because like they're they're a very poppy band but i feel like they keep coming up um and their their staying power in that sense like i mentioned earlier 50th anniversary um is kind of a tribute to how solid they always were you know it's easy sometimes kind of looking at their artwork or hearing little bits of songs that are particularly referential to other artists it could be easy to get the impression that they're maybe a little like hokey or maybe like overly commercially minded Mm -hmm. but they really are their own thing even if that thing is you know, a clear mix of a few other pre-existing things, but they really have, you know, Jeff Lynn is in it because he loves it and he does have a particular sound and they do have a certain style of songwriting that is timeless. It's not just directly a product of uh, this period in the mid seventies. They are their own sound, their whole own vibe. And I think it, it, there are periods of time where it's like easier to understand that and, and understand them for who they are and not get uh, 
caught up on uh, on the other. I don't know what, where I was going with it. I got enough of <laughs> what I just said to make a case. Yeah, point. but um, I think you know I think uh, you can. Re- it's easy to realize if you really give them some time. They are really fun. In a lot of ways, they're timeless. And uh, you know I think future generations can 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 find nuggets of their work that they really enjoy and the, and they'll live on. Mm-hmm. You know I think they have staying power. Definitely. It's interesting too the like 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 what you touched on how people might see them as hokey or if anything too more like I feel like some people might even put generic on them like oh this sounds very seventies and just write it off as like sounding of the era but then when you yeah following the trend yeah but then when you zero in like you said and you're like oh, okay so give me another band that like really sounds like gives the ELO vibe and if you really try to it's you realize how unique they are. Uh, and how, yeah, they they made it. They definitely did go with some trends. They definitely do sound, you know, like their influences. But they also undoubtedly made it their own. Yeah, and they're worth checking out beyond the hits if you're looking for just fantastical, fun, uh, experimental pop music. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I we we came into this week and talking about out of the blue i i visited it so that i could talk about it today but i think i truly will kind of go back and and check out some songs again which i i didn't necessarily think that would happen uh and now i think i want to check out a few other albums of theirs like a new world record Uh, i hear time has a particular kind of cult following Mm -hmm. and i love uh hold on tight your dreams i think that's a great song. song twilight is a classic yeah uh so yeah you know, ELO, Electric Lloyd, Electro, they're hard to say, <laughs> Electric Light Orchestra, they've been on my radar for a while. A lot, you know, a lot of fans of my music, some, some Moondogs had mentioned them before I'd gotten requests to do uh, some covers. Uh, they're on my radar now. I think I'd, I'd give them a recommend. Good. Yeah. No, I would, yeah, I recommend them for all the same reasons that you said. I think, I think there could be some nice crossovers between, between fans. I, I, I'm not surprised by that, so... Well, Joe, if we were to sum up Out of the Blue in three words, uh, what, what words do you think you would give this album? Uh, let's see. Um, the first one that came to mind was Fantastical. The second one was Grandiose. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to try real hard not to spa- say Spaceship. So I'm going to go <laughs> with... So I'm going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with Full because all the audio is... It doesn't beat you over the head. Like it's, it never sounds like noise, but it's definitely it fills in all the spaces just really well with yes. all of their instruments. It's really I feel like it'd be really easy with all the instruments that he has going on, all the noises, all the sounds, all the synth to make it sound like um, not to not to make this sound like a negative term, like a wall of noise or something that's indistinguishable. Mm, yeah. But he definitely makes it all work out so smoothly that you you know, it just flows. So I'd say full. It's uh, it's maximalist, but never really, none of the ideas wear out their welcome, mm-hmm. which again, I think is a product of just working really quickly and not overanalyzing and just, all right, go, go, go. All right. I'm good with this. We've, we filled out this enough. Let's move on to the next thing. Like, I, I think that ethic really helps them in that mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with, with all the, all the terms you put forth. Cause I was going to say extravagant, mm-hmm. I think I'll still say that. That's different yeah, from Grandiose. This album is definitely extravagant. Uh, it is very referential. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the other word on my mind now is rain. I was going to say rain, too. Like, in the yeah. middle of your words, I was thinking, man, there's a lot of rain stuff going on. Space yeah. rain. But there you go. Just a lot of space rain. Space rain. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a product of his environment. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I, I will forever now think of the Alps when I'm listening to this. Yep, when, uh, just, just think of the Alps and have a nice Belgian beer, the full ELO experience. <laughs> All right, we made it to the end. That is it for this week. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. Uh, what, do, what do I got to say before we head out here? If you are a Niagara Moon fan, and uh, you know, in case you're not aware, I have a Patreon, Niagara Moon Music on Patreon. So much stuff going on in there. If you want to check that out, uh, feel free. And if you really like the podcasts, uh, you want to support it in any kind of small way you know go, go ahead and write a write a review on uh, itunes or or whichever pl- other platform you're using there's like a hundred of them at this point isn't there anyway love y'all thanks so much for listening to this episode next week is tbd but i'm sure it'll be something cool until then bye-bye